Well, last year, just before the uh, the change of circumstance around the uh, fires that happened here, Diana and I had a little break uh, holiday in late December. We had planned to go across to the south coast of New South Wales, but that plan changed. So we went to the holiday capital of northeastern Victoria, uh, Paul Punker. And to tell you the honest truth, uh, Paul Punker was a fantastic venue, and Ivan, you're going to have to do the slides for me because the clicking thing is not working. Paul Punker is a lovely spot. We actually camped right on the Buckland River, and I'm hesitant to tell you this because it might change, but we were there during a period of time, that window of opportunity just before Christmas, when nobody else was on holiday. And there was one night in the caravan park when we were the only ones there. I'm not going to tell you what the dates were because next year (laughs) you might want to be there too. But we did something that I've always wanted to do and that is explore the Buckland Valley. It's a valley with significant history, uh, particularly a significant gold mining history. And I could tell you stories for ages about the gold mining history up there as I have researched it. But I must confess to having a little bit of, um, I guess the word would be jealousy. Because a hundred or so years ago, in fact more than a hundred years ago, a great flock of miners went into that area and they absolutely decimated the place. They dug it out, they sluiced it out, they panned it out and they took all of the gold and they didn't leave any for me. And over the years um, we have done a little bit of gold mining and, and, and so I, and just to put it in perspective, that looks impressive up there but this is the, this is the real deal, the same bottle inside. This is all I have got. After hours and hours of uh, being up to my neck sometimes in cold water and I, I so wish that instead of taking the whole loaf like those early miners did, they left more than just a few crumbs for me. I was reading a book just recently too that was rather an interesting read. A couple who travelled around Australia in a caravan, they visited the north west of our country up there around Port Hedland and looked at the uh, iron ore export business and they were surprised to hear those who were in charge of that operation saying, we are exporting this many million tonnes of iron ore every year and in the next few years we're going to multiply that eightfold we're going to have an 800% increase in the amount of iron ore that is exported from Port Hedland. And at the end of the chapter, the fellow who wrote the book asked a rather interesting question. He said, couldn't help but wonder what's going to be left for our children. Really interesting question. Kind of pulled me up short, actually. I stopped and I thought about that. What is going to be left for our children? Now, you might be wondering what on earth gold mining and uh, iron ore has to do with our journey through the book of Mark. I'm just going to leave you hanging for a little while to make sure that you listen all the way to the end of the sermon because they are related. Uh, But we are coming back this morning to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through to verse 37. And what I'm going to do this morning... Uh, In fact, we're going to do three things this morning. We're going to have a look at the context of the passage. It's helpful and important to do that. We're going to have a look at the passage itself just briefly and then I'm going to anchor the passage 
into the broader testimony of Scripture because one of the words that sprung to mind for me as I was reading this passage is a word that you'll probably be familiar with, the word shalom. Now, if you visit somewhere in uh, in a Jewish kind of dominant area, whether Israel or if you're in Melbourne, you might visit Caulfield, you'll hear this word used, shalom. It's used as a greeting, shalom. It's used as a farewell and it means peace. But it's not just like uh, peace from war and it's not like just my kids are driving me nuts, give me some shalom. It's not that kind of peace. Shalom is actually a word that describes a much deeper sense of peace. If you're familiar with shalom, you'll know that the word shalom uh, describes a peace that is experienced spiritually, the shalom that we experience in our relationship with God. It's a peace that is experienced psychologically, so if you like, in my relationship with myself. It's a peace uh, that is experienced physically with others, uh, with in relationship with others, and in relationship to our world. And the story that we are about to have a look at, the healing of this deaf man in Mark chapter 7, is a demonstration of the power of God that, again, for Mark's purpose, he wanted his readers to ask the question, who is this man? And so it's demonstrating again who Jesus is, but it's also a demonstration of Jesus as the one who came to bring shalom, the one who brings peace. And it's not just a spiritual thing that Jesus brings. That's where I want to go with uh, looking at this passage this morning. So let's have a look at the passage. It's from Mark chapter 7, verse 31 through to verse 37. Starting in verse 31. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to the man, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept on talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is a story that took place uh, in the region of the Decapolis and it's worth just throwing a map up onto the screen to familiarise ourselves with the area that we're talking about because a fair percentage of Jesus' ministry took place on the west side of Galilee. You see Galilee there towards the top of the map, about three-quarters of the way up, around the area of Capernaum, those towns that we're so familiar with. But on the other side of the lake, this region of the Decapolis was a dominant Greek area. There were some Jews that lived in the area, perhaps a few small communities, and it's possible it's possible that the man who was brought to Jesus for healing was a Jew. But what we need to note as we come to this passage is that this is actually not the first time that Jesus has done ministry in this area. 
In fact, it works out rather nicely and I'd love to be able to say I planned it like this and maybe I did. But last week, Matt spoke about Jesus doing ministry in the region of the Decapolis. You might remember uh, he travelled with his disciples across the lake. They disembarked there uh, and a man who had been possessed by a legion of demons uh, was confronting him there. And an amazing miracle took place. An amazing healing was performed. But there were two other things of significance that were recorded in that story. Uh, Matt uh, spoke about the first one. He said, uh, and the uh, scripture tells us, when the man was healed, when he was sitting there and in his right mind, when the people observed the pigs that had gone down into the, uh, into the lake, when they saw the man sitting there in his right mind, what was their response? You remember they said to Jesus, it's so good to have you here. Come and do some more stuff, right? No, that's not what they said. They said, get out of here. We don't want you in our area. Go, leave us. It's an interesting thing to speculate on why they did that, isn't it? Were they frightened by the change that they saw? Had Jesus so rocked the normality of their world that they uh, they didn't want it rocked? I, we don't know. But they said, get out of Dodge, so to speak. Just leave us, you know, go away. And so Jesus did. The second thing that uh, is rather interesting that we, uh, we saw at the back end of Mark chapter 5 down there in verse 20 was the man who had been healed uh, said to Jesus, hey, can I go with you? Can I come with you? And Jesus said, no, I want you to go back to your hometown, to go back to where you come from. And so the man went, here's a photograph of this region, uh, he went from the place where he was healed, which is possibly in this photograph because uh, in this picture you'll see very closely there's a cliff area there. It's the only cliff that we know of on that side of the lake, probably the spot where the pigs went into the water. Uh, Jesus said, no, go back into that region. Go back through the cities. Here's a photograph of the ancient city of Hippus, which is right on the lake, so possibly one of the cities that he went through. Now, you might be wondering where the city is just for, uh, this is like slideshow, show and tell moment. Uh, it's not this area here. This is the city right up here on top of the hill. You can see the road zigzagging up the hill to the top. That's where the city was built. The man went and it tells us in the scripture that he told everyone that he encountered about what had happened to him. If you go back then through from the back end of chapter 5 through chapter 6 through chapter 7, you will discover that Jesus went from that place. He went and undertook some ministry in uh, cities, in towns that we're familiar with. Bethsaida, you'll see that there up at about 1 o'clock above um, uh, the Lake Galilee there. He went through Capernaum. Uh, for whatever reason, we don't know why he did this. You might want to speculate on this if you're in a small group. He went north up to Tyre. You'll find Tyre on the coast up there into the region of Syrophoenicia. He did some ministry up there and then he returned. But it's rather interesting as he returned, he came back down and he sort of skirted around the area that was governed by Herod Antipas and he returned to the Decapolis. I suspect that he skirted around the area governed by Herod Antipas, which is that, uh, that west side, that Galilee there, you'll see it shaded there, because Herod was starting to show a bit of interest in him. You'll actually read about this in Mark chapter 6. And so perhaps Jesus was trying to avoid some further complications in his ministry. He went back to the city, uh, the city area, that Decapolis region, and this time something very strange happened. 
For what we discover as we come to Mark chapter 7 verse 31 is a reaction quite different to the last time, isn't it? Whereas previously the people had said, go away, we don't want you here. This time they brought their sick and welcomed him. What's the difference? I genuinely suspect it's actually the witness of the man who was healed. That Jesus said, go back and and he talked. Why wouldn't he? No, he... he'd been healed from an amazing affliction and so this time when Jesus came back he was welcomed back and actually people came as we see here in Mark chapter 7 some people verse 32 some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk the people actually welcomed Jesus back into their region there's the power of of talking to others about Jesus right there if you want a really easy application to take away this morning never underestimate the power of telling others what Jesus has done for you because when they encounter Jesus they will discover something new and fresh this guy this guy who was healed I suspect we don't know this for sure uh, but I suspect had uh, done a lot of talking through the region and so when Jesus came back people were ready to meet him and the text tells us that there were some people back to verse 32 who brought to Jesus a man who was deaf and could hardly talk and they begged Jesus to place his hand on the man that's a typical Jewish blessing that they were asking for a rabbi would be asked to place hands on a person and bless them note what they're asking for a blessing but note what Jesus does more than just a blessing He took the man aside from the crowd. There's some lovely things that go on in here. Uh, Verse 33, took the man aside away from the crowd. You'll notice if you're going through the book of Mark that from here on pretty well, Jesus does a lot of stuff in private. A lot of the miracles that he performs are not for public. They're not for everyone to see. They're very personal. And he took the man aside. And what does the scripture tell us if we come back here? to verse 33 put his fingers into the man's ears he didn't have to worry about hand wash or toilet tissue or anything like that he just put his fingers into the man's ears why did he do that well this guy is finding it very hard to to uh, to be communicated with or receive communication so physically he was communicating what he was about to do his ears and we also just see from the scripture here, he took some spit, he touched the man's tongue, again, touching the body part that was problematic. But it was not those acts, the acts of touching, the acts of touching the tongue that actually performed the healing. On this occasion, Jesus looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh uh, said Ephaphla, which means be open. Jesus spoke the word. That's significant too. We see again as we come on our journey through the book of Mark, Jesus, this powerful Messiah, speaks and it is done. It's not some sort of magic incarnation. It's not some ritual that you've got to get right to perform a healing. It's the powerful spoken word that does the work. And it's interesting too that Mark records it was with a deep sigh, which is Jesus' typical response when he's confronted by sin or disease or sickness. And the man was healed. And then something really, really weird going on here in verse 36. You know, this guy has, has potentially, uh, he may have once upon a time had his hearing. We don't know. We don't know the story. But for, for some time, at least perhaps for a long time, he struggled. 
And now, all of a sudden, he can hear clearly. Just listen. What do you hear? You know, we pick up stuff even in the silence of this room. This is the first time this guy's heard it for years, perhaps. And suddenly his tongue's loose and he can speak for the first time. That's so exciting. What does Jesus say to him? Don't talk about this with anyone. What on earth is that about? You know, I just imagine the guy uh, there. I love the story in, in the Gospel of John, the guy who's lying by the pool and Jesus comes. He says, do you want to be healed? I best not get distracted onto this one. Uh, and the guy says, well, you know, I've been here for so long, what do you reckon? Uh, it would be a bit like Jesus saying, hey, you're, you're healed, you, you can walk, and, but don't go walking anywhere. You know, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Why would Jesus say? There's a question that actually pops up in Mark a few times because we see it uh, more than once, this uh, kind of injunction to silence, a secrecy motive, if you like, or a, a kind of a, a pattern of keep this under wraps kind of stuff. Why does Jesus do that? Now, if we had time, I'd get you to work out this in a small group. What do you think? What is, what's going on here? Why does Jesus say, be quiet, don't tell anyone about this? I think there's possibly a clue to be found in the Great Commission. This is just a theory I've got. You can run this one yourselves and you can disagree. You're most welcome to do that. As long as you can prove it from Scripture, I don't mind. After the Great Commission, sorry, at the time of the Great Commission, Jesus said to his disciples, go and talk, tell everyone. Before the resurrection, Jesus often says, don't talk. And I suspect it is because you cannot fully understand what's going on when Jesus performs this healing until after the resurrection. You cannot fully understand the significance or the importance of what Jesus has done for this guy until he has been resurrected. And there's a dramatic change, isn't there, in Jesus' posture. Don't tell anyone, tell everyone. It's just a theory. You can probably figure out a better one. And if you have got a better one, let me know so that um, when I'm preaching on this passage again in a few years' time, I can you know, offer something a bit more sensible than that. But anyway, there's an idea. The guy was encouraged not to, uh, to speak. Let's broaden this, though, because this passage is not just anchored here in Mark as a nice story it fits more broadly into the wider context of Scripture. And those who were listening, particularly Jewish people, would have picked this up. It's a little trickier for us. But there's a word that's used in the Greek language for the word ear and hearing that is very, very unusual. In fact, it's the only time it's used in, uh, in the, the book of Mark where um, Mark has identified this guy who was deaf and could hardly talk. The language there is unique. It actually... For a Jewish person well-versed in the Scriptures, it would have caused them straight away to think of another passage, a passage from Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. An Old Testament passage, or we call it an Old Testament, it shouldn't probably be called that, the First Testament. It was the only Scriptures that the Jewish people in those times had. But a passage that those who were well-versed in the Scriptures would have 
recognise. When they heard that word in the New Testament, when they heard that word used by Mark, it would have linked them back to this passage in Isaiah and caused some lights to go on. Because back in Isaiah, as Isaiah the prophet looked towards a day when the Messiah would come, when the shalom of God would be revealed. This is what would happen. The eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like the deer and the mute tongue shall shout for joy. Water, you live in a dry country, you'll get this. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. There's a time coming, says Isaiah, Uh, when the shalom of God will be revealed. And so, as we read this passage, those who had ears to hear it, if we can use that little pun, would have recognised that link. Aha! There's something going on here in this ministry of Jesus. Jesus is the one who is bringing, who is inaugurating, who is releasing that shalom. There's another passage that Jesus referred to also himself, Isaiah chapter 29 verse 18 which says in that day the deaf will hear words of the scroll and out of the gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see once more the humble will rejoice in the Lord the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel when Jesus was asked by John the Baptist's disciples are you the one who has come or should we look for someone else he said well what do you see and he referred them straight back to this passage the one who brings shalom the one who brings this change that has been prophesied about. And here's something uh, to chew over uh, this morning. Perhaps one of the mistakes that we make uh, in our tradition and perhaps even uh, I I recognise this too to some degree in my ministry is this. We think about Jesus the Son of God who came into the world as the one who came to save us from sin. That is true, absolutely true. What is the chief work of the Messiah? To reconcile sinners to God. That would be the quickest and easiest description of the work of Jesus. And so we tend to uh, compartmentalise, if you like, the work of Christ. It's a spiritual work. It's all about reconciling hearts to God. And it is. Please don't misunderstand me. It absolutely is. However, I want to put it to you this morning that this passage actually points us to Jesus who is more than just a spiritual saviour but as the one who brings and enables and embodies shalom, that peace that goes across all elements and aspects of life. You see, I think those physical healings that Jesus performed and he performed a multitude of healings were not just metaphors of spiritual healing. They were not just examples in the physical of what he wants to do in the spiritual. They impacted people, right? This guy was changed. His life was transformed. The shalom was experienced in his physical body. And that's fantastic because the Messiah longs to bring that into our lives, into our community, into our worlds. And throughout the uh, the ministry of Jesus, there are constant references back to the Old Testament where the one who would bring shalom is anticipated and in some senses this passage is saying he is here, he is the one, Jesus is the one who brings shalom, he is the one who brings peace. And throughout the Old Testament, the concept of shalom is never 
just a spiritual concept. It touches every aspect of life. It engages the physical, it engages the social, it engages the psychological, it engages the spiritual. And rather interestingly, if we unpack some of that, it's a, it's a shalom that doesn't just touch the person either. It impacts all of creation. Have you thought about this? At the start, if you go back to Genesis, we have a description of what shalom actually looks like because God created this beautiful world where everything worked in relationship in the manner that it was intended and sin, of course, has impacted that and changed that. In Romans chapter 8, verse 22, Paul states that the whole of creation has been groaning waiting for the restoration of shalom. If I uh, pop up a verse here from Colossians as an example here, it tells us too that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that of course is in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now note the language there, it's talking about all things, not just people. God's shalom impacts all of creation. And so this peace, this shalom of the Messiah is to impact every aspect of life. That I find is challenging because in my ministry experience, in my life in church, uh, so much of my thinking has been focused around that spiritual dynamic, the spiritual reconciliation that God is at work doing. And that's important that we we focus on that and hold on to that. There is a work that God has called us to do to reconcile. Uh, in fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul said, all of this, the work that God is doing is from God who's reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We join God in the task of spiritually reconciling people to God, but the task of reconciliation is more than spiritual. There's a lovely little passage back here in the Old Testament in Jeremiah when uh, Jeremiah wrote a letter from God to the exiles in Babylon, this is what he said. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, this is significant, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray, for, uh, pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you will too. You want to do a, a work of theology around what does it mean to connect and relate and engage with our neighbourhood. This is a great passage to use, isn't it? What is God encouraging his people in exile to do? These are foreigners in the land, not these. He says, engage with the place that you live in. Work for Shalom. Work for that peace, that all-embracing peace wherever you are. Work for it so that people might be reconciled with God. Work for it so that the community knows that peace. And so through the Old Testament, Shalom is expressed as care and concern for the outsider, for uh, those who are aliens. It's expressed as attention to justice and mercy. It expresses itself both in relationship to the physical world and to the spiritual world. It's something that Jesus demonstrated 
and expects his disciples to demonstrate for he said a new commandment I give to you to love one another as I have loved you and so we do the things that Jesus has done because he's called us to do that so if you're still with me what on earth does a tiny little bottle of gold have to do with what I've just been talking about well, we're going to put some practical wheels on uh, what I've spoken about this morning because uh, if we are to be agents of shalom in our community, it means there are some things we have to think about and things that we have to do. One of the things that we have to think about is what is our posture or our attitude towards materialism and greed? What is our thinking around getting as much as I possibly can? Now I have to confess to you, if I was out in the uh, Buckland Valley and I hit a kind of a what does the Americans call it, a honey hole of, um, you know, suddenly my gold pan was full of gold. Man, I tell you, I'd be out there until dark and even if it was a work day the next day, I'd be ringing up and saying, oh, probably shouldn't come in, you know, a bit of chesty stuff. Back out there the next day because I want to get as much as I can. That's an attitude that we have to question, isn't it? What do we say about gaining as much as we can, accumulating as quickly as we can? doing stuff to make ourselves more and more comfortable at the expense sometimes of others. Now, the examples that I've used are really poor. But think more broadly. What are the implications of some of our actions? If we're to be agents of shalom, we need to ask those kinds of questions. How do my decisions impact other people in my neighbourhood, in my community, in my world? What does it actually look like to be a person who is doing shalom where God has called us to be. It does not mean extracting as much from the world as we can and grasping it all for ourselves. We are called by Christ to be countercultural. Our culture says, get what you can for yourselves. That's not the way of shalom that Jesus has demonstrated for us. What does it mean to think of others before ourselves as Jesus encouraged us to do? What does it mean? to be agents of shalom who are satisfied with what we have, what God has given to us? What does it mean to be advocates for how the resources of our world are used and distributed? What does it mean to think about our next-door neighbour and how my impact or how my, uh, my actions or my life impacts them? What does it look like? in the context of helping people in Koryong, for example. I've put my head onto this a little bit this week and thinking, you know what, uh, once upon a time I probably would have said, let's take a team and make sure that somehow we make sure the gospel's there, you know, we've got to be able to share with these people, or we've got to be able to pray with them, or we've got to see some spiritual impact to be useful. But you know what, doing shalom might simply be going out and washing someone's car for them, or mending a fence or fixing something, or being present with them, improving the world around them, changing their physical circumstances, giving them hope, and seeing what God does with that. And so here's some homework for you. Grab out a pen, paper, whatever you need so that you don't forget this, some homework. I don't often give homework, um, and unfortunately, this is not unfortunate, Matt's preaching next week, I think. That's fortunate. But, but it's unfortunate because it means it's going to be at least two weeks before I can follow up with you. Uh, what? Here's the question, here's the homework. What can I do to be an agent of shalom 
in my neighbourhood this week? What can I do to change the circumstances that I live in, whether they be the social circumstances in the relationships that I have, the civic circumstances more broadly, the way that we are governed or the way we organise our community, the physical circumstances, the environment that I live in, the spiritual circumstances. Have you prayed for your next door neighbour? Have you said hello to them? Uh, There's all sorts of things that you might like to dream up and do. What can you do this week to be an agent of Shalom and follow in the footsteps of Jesus who demonstrated by a physical healing what it meant to be the one who brings shalom the messiah who has been uh, who has come to the world to reconcile us spiritually with god yes but to transform the way that we live in community let's pray as uh, we consider uh, what god might be saying to each of us father again we thank you for your word we thank you for the stories recorded of what Jesus has done and we know continues to do. Lord, in this story we see what for you, Jesus, was a fairly simple action, a healing of a man with a real need and it transformed his life. Father, we pray that you will help us to follow in the footsteps of our Lord as agents of shalom as agents as ambassadors of the most high god who uh, longs to bring peace and reconciliation in our community and we pray this morning you'll help us to dream big about what that might look like for father sometimes we uh, we kind of want to squeeze you into a box we have some kind of idea about what we can or can't do to be legitimately involved in ministry help us to dream bigger than those boxes and be led by your spirit today into the places that you have planted us in our neighborhood and in our community to be agents of shalom that peace that you long to be expressed amongst your people and in your creation Lord, bless us as we go, empower us, we pray. We thank you for your presence with us and we offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.